Thank you for reading, David. Um, Keep your Bibles open. We'll be referring to that passage as we go. But first, how about I pray? Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, please still our minds and our hearts as we listen to your word. And please help us to not just be hearers of your word, but doers of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Just wait as I unlock my iPad. Great. Um, Making my first email address was a very significant moment in the life of 12-year-old Adam. It was cool at the time to sum up your whole being, the whole essence of who you were, in a word or two, maybe a number, maybe an underscore. Thankfully, my dad and I were up for the task. The email address we decided on was runnerman86 at hotmail.com. It was utter genius. At the time, I was doing a lot of little athletics, so runner, that makes sense. Uh, Man, I wanted to leave my boyhood ways behind me and grow up. And 86. Well, unfortunately, every number significant to me was taken, so Hotmail just suggested 86. But thankfully, my dad told me that uh, the year 1986 was a great year for the Australian cricket team. Therefore, this number should have a great amount of significance for me. Now, this meant that I could send emails to my friends. Passion underscore pineapple liked both passion fruit and pineapple. Uh, My friend, the Dutch trumpeter, uh, he was Dutch and also played the trumpet. But sadly, runnerman86 has been retired and is no more. Um, When I was looking for my first job, I didn't want my resume to end up straight in the garbage bin. Um, So it makes sense to have a more wise email address. Although this did mean that my first employer did not know that the year 1986 was a great year for the Australian cricket team. Um, Changing an email address is significant. It's actually quite a pain, so you don't do it lightly. You do it whether you're entering a new job or whether a relationship might be changing. But as you do this, you're leaving something behind and heading towards something new. In the Bible, when God changes someone's name, he's not doing it lightly or carelessly. Uh, So far in the book of Genesis, uh, Abram has become Abraham, Sarai, Sarah, and tonight, Jacob's name is changed. But the question is, why is this so significant for Jacob? Why is it so significant for God's Old Testament people? And why is it so significant for us? So that's what we're going to be thinking about from the book, uh, from uh, Genesis chapter 32. Um, First, in the narrative, we're going to be thinking about Jacob coming near to Esau. Then we're going to think about God coming near to Jacob before thinking about what does it mean for God to come near to us. So first, Jacob comes near to Esau. Um, Now, last week, um, we saw sort of Jacob interacting with Laban. um, And now Jacob continues on his journey from where he was with Laban in Padam Aram, Um, back towards his family, his father Isaac, in the land of Canaan. Um, As Jacob is um, heading on his way, uh, um, God shows up, some angels show up, and uh, Jacob recognizes that this is the camp of God, he says. And this should remind us um, of what happened to Jacob as he left his family. When God's angels turned up back then, now angels are turning up again. It's almost like bookending Jacob's time away from the covenant family with these two appearances of angels. Now, you'll see Jacob changes the name of the place. Uh, He he names it a a word which means two camps. I think what Jacob understands here is that as he's 
physically encamped in this place. He recognizes that God is camped with him. God is with him in this place. So again, as Jacob leaves and as Jacob returns to his family, God is reminding Jacob that God is with him and that God is a God who keeps his promises. Next, Jacob sends a messenger ahead to his brother Esau. Um, We've seen earlier in the book, the last interaction that Jacob had with Esau was not a good one. Uh, Jacob had just stolen the blessing from his father Isaac, uh, which Isaac was trying to give to Esau. Um, and this caused uh, Esau to be so angry, he, was, uh, he had murderous, murderous intent. He was hoping to kill his twin brother. Um, their mother sent Jacob away, and she said, I'll send a messenger to you when Jacob has calmed down, when he's not trying to kill you yet. Uh, but that message never came. So Jacob does not know if his brother's Esau, his brother's Esau, his brother Esau's anger has been quenched yet, or whether he still wants to kill him. Now it's interesting here that Jacob, uh, when you look at the geography of the place, Jacob didn't need to go uh, from he didn't need to go through Edom to get to Canaan, but in some sense, I think that Jacob understands that he must go through Esau before he gets back to his family. I think part of this might be that Jacob and his young family uh, don't want to live in constant threat and battle uh, and have to battle with Esau and his family, uh, the Edomites. Um, What we see in the passage is Jacob hopes to see Esau's uh, look on him with favor, the text says. Um, Jacob tells Esau um, in the message that he has cattle and donkey, sheep and goats. And I think this is Jacob trying to convince Esau that he's no longer a threat, that the grasper, the one who's stolen his birthright and then his blessing, is not after anything more. He's trying to convince his brother Esau that he has changed, that he's left his grasping ways behind. Instead, he wants to find favor in Esau's eyes. Now, the messenger returns to Jacob and Esau's coming with 400 men. Uh, Jacob can only conclude from this that Esau is still very angry. And it's not just him, but his young family now that are in the threat. The face of favor Jacob had hoped to see is, turns out to be a face of fury. All of the wrongdoing, all of the trickery, all of the deception that Jacob uh, directed against his brother Esau has come back to bite him. Now it's Jacob, his young family, verse Esau and 400 men. The comfort and reminder of God's presence just moments before with the seeing of the angels disappears from favor to fury, from hope to horror, from restoration to retribution. Jacob frantically springs into action. First, knowing that preparing for battle is not a viable option for Jacob and his young family, his first plan is to mitigate uh, his losses. It's pretty funny, dividing his people, thinking, if one of them gets attacked, at least I'll have the other half. You can imagine him sort of thinking, which wife goes this way, which child goes that way, Um, dire. Um, It's maybe not so funny after all. Um, But this is what we we get in the text. Uh, Verse 7 In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and herds and camels as well. He thought, if Esau comes and attacks one group, the other group may escape. He's not even sure if this plan will work. 
splitting everything in two, hoping that some might survive. Now, next, Jacob decides to pray to God. You might have thought maybe that's what he should have done first, but no, Jacob first springs into action. Um, Jacob is aware at this moment that if God does not act to save him, that him and his family will surely die. Um, Jacob has been able to rely up until this point on his own cunningness. He's able to grasp, he's able to scheme and deceive, but not anymore. He's meeting someone that he cannot do that to this time. Jacob prays for God to deliver him. Uh, Much of the prayer uh, is restating promises God has made to him or to his family, reminding God in some sense of what it is that he has promised. Um, Jacob quotes uh, something that God had said to him. He says, You who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. After this, Jacob acknowledges God's kindness and faithfulness to him. He's been unworthy. As he left to head uh, over the Jordan River to go to Laban, all he had was a staff. But now as he returns, he has wives and children, servants and livestock. But all of that is under threat. Jacob prays that God would rescue, that God would save, that God would deliver, because he knows if God does not, then he and his family are no more. Jacob ends his prayer as he began. He restates the promise that God made to his grandfather Abraham, which goes, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea that can never be counted. Jacob knows and sees that this threat, uh, there's a threat to this promise. If God doesn't act, then this will not come true. After praying, thirdly, um, Jacob prepares gifts for his brother. You'll notice there were five servants. Each of them were allotted a number of animals. Uh, In total, the gift he's sending his brother is 550 animals. That's a lot of animals. And with each servant, Jacob gives a message. In verse 17... When my brother Esau meets you and asks, who do you belong to and where are you going and who owns all these animals in front of you, then you are to say they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a gift sent to you, sent to my Lord and he is coming behind us. It's interesting here that Jacob, as he approaches or is aware that Esau is approaching him, is creating a great sense of distance or gap. He's hoping that maybe the gifts out in front will appease the anger, um, and maybe even if Esau and his men were after plunder, they would be happy with all these gifts and would leave Jacob alone. He knows he cannot flee or hide or trick this time. He's trying to win back his brother's favour. Jacob prepares such a lavish gift in some sense, recognising the great wrong that he has done towards his brother. Now, it's hard to know what to make of this. Is this a changed Jacob? Is this a humbled Jacob? Is he resting securely in the knowledge that God is able to save him as he prays? Or is this the grasper up to his own tricks? Is he just trying in his own effort, in his own thinking, to, to win his brother's favour? Well, regardless, these three things Jacob does this day Uh, does not calm the fear, no balm for his worry, because the planning and plotting continues into the night. We don't know if this next part is motivated by sleeplessness or whether this was the final piece in the jigsaw, but we read in verse 22, that night Jacob got up and took his two wives, 
his two female servants and his 11 sons and, uh, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone. When faced with the threat of losing something so dear to us, we too, like Jacob, might spring into action. Uh, the fear of the other drives us to do anything to win their favor. Reconciliation is hard when we have been wronged. It's all the harder when we can identify that we've contributed something to this problem. We know it's our fault. And then in fear, in this state of fear, things we know to be true about God can almost disappear from our minds. Jacob here, and we too might forget God's presence or God's promises or his past faithfulness. Driven by fear, we too might manage and prepare in our own strength. We might exhaust all our options before a last-ditch attempt to turn to God. Or worse still, we might have prayed to God, yet we don't feel any sense of relief or comfort. The peace we so desperately hoped for just simply will not come. When faced with situations so much out of our control, what can we do? We need to find our comfort in God, even though he feels so far away. If these are feelings that you are feeling at the moment or into the future, uh, please don't keep quiet. Uh, don't stay alone. God's grace and mercy is always bigger than our problems. And God's gift to us is each other, his church. Uh, we with each other, uh, as we share our, our weaknesses and our burdens and our fears, um, in my experience, the more honest I am with my struggles, the more honest other people are with me too. So in the darkness of night, in the quietness of Jacob's solitude, before the dawn of the sun can shine success or failure on his plans, uh, then in this moment, God shows up. God comes near, not in a dream, not in a vision, but in a man, a man who initiates a physical wrestle with Jacob until daybreak. This fight was different to any fight Jacob had had before. In a sense, Jacob sort of been wrestling or fighting his whole life. His brother Esau in his mother's womb, fighting against Esau, then fighting now against Laban. But this fight here is different. Jacob cannot, fight, he's fighting someone he can't outsmart or outrun or deceive. Jacob needs this fight. He needs this encounter with God. He needs to be humbled to know that the success or failure of the coming day is only up to God. It's only God who can rescue him. It's only in God's strength that he will survive. There's so much mystery and so much unknown about this encounter, but God does, there's uh, four sort of clues in the text that anchor this wrestle in reality. Jacob will never be able to forget this encounter with God. Jacob is left with permanent marks to remind him of both God's power and God's presence with him. The first thing God does is he humbles Jacob's physical strength. The man wrestling Jacob, most likely an angel from God, even though Jacob recognizes this to be God, they were so powerful that with a single touch of Jacob's hip, his hip was wrenched out of its socket. Uh, the most common cause of a dislocated hip these days is a car crash, but this man was able to do it with a single touch. For the rest of Jacob's days, he would walk with a limp. 
he would have a reminder, a physical reminder of his weakness in himself to know that it's only God who can provide for him and save him. We read in verse 31, After this encounter, the sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. This personal encounter with God, he will never be able to forget. This encounter in the darkness, now the light is shined upon it. His, his family see him limping. They know something has changed within him. And next, we also see God humbling Jacob's identity and his character. At daybreak, the man asked Jacob uh, to let him go, but Jacob grasped and wouldn't. Maybe we shouldn't be surprised at that, Jacob's name meaning grasper. In this, uh, Jacob is acknowledging, uh, Jacob wants a blessing from this man. In a sense, he's acknowledging that the person he's wrestling uh, is more powerful than him because blessings only come from those more powerful uh, than us. The man asks Jacob his name, but the thing is, this man, God already knows who he's dealing with. I think God is wanting Jacob to identify himself as Jacob, the grasper, the deceiver. In a sense, he's acknowledging who he is. We read in verse 28, Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, Please tell me your name. But he replied, Why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him. The meaning of the name Israel in the text is given because Jacob wrestled both with people and with God and overcame. But it's been abundantly clear in the life of Jacob in the narrative of Genesis that any sense of overcoming that Jacob has been able to achieve is because of God's strength and provision. He was only able to overcome Laban and get all those flocks because God was with him and showed him his favor. God is faithful to his promises. If Jacob and his family are to survive, it'll only be because God rescues them. Jacob must struggle to cling to God's promises instead of relying on his own strength. In changing Jacob's name, God is changing Jacob's sense of identity and his character as well. Jacob, the one who deceives and uses others for his own advantage, is now being molded by God into the vessel that God wants him to be. And there's two other interesting things in the text that sort of anchor this encounter in the awareness of God's people. Uh, the first being the change of the name, Peniel, meaning face of God. Um, you can imagine God's people remembering this place and this name. But also, uh, there's a change in the food custom, that God's people will, won't eat a particular part of the hip to remember this encounter. It's significant from there, for them. The book of Genesis tells God's people who they are before him. This is their family history and ours too. God's family will continue to grow, uh, spoiler alert for the weeks to come. Um, Jacob's sons plus two of Joseph's sons will become a tribe. They'll become a nation. But this nation is not called the nation... Oh, sorry, go back one bit. Um, the meaning of the name Israel in this text is given because Jacob uh, wrestles with God and with people and overcomes. But more accurately, the picture that's represented should have God as the subject. Namely, God fights for his people. The name, of, the name Israel means God fights for his people. Therefore, the name God gives his people is not the 12 tribes of Jacob, not the nation of Jacob, but the nation of Israel. 
In doing this, God is identifying his covenant people not as those who grasp for blessing from him, but the one that God fights for, the people that God delivers. And the Old Testament makes abundantly clear in every victory Israel wins, it's only because God gives them the victory. In every defeat they face, it's often that they've turned back to their Jacob-like ways. They're grasping for things in their own strength. Or worse still, they grasp for idols or grasp for fake gods from the nations around them. Israel will ultimately fail to live up to their name, God fights or God struggles. So God must come near again. God must come near to us. God will show up again. He will fight for his people again. God's own son will enter this world. He will be the perfect Israel. He will perfectly entrust himself to God, the Father, to give him the victory. He will trust God's promises and not his own strength. God did not name his son Israel, God fights, but instead he named him Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. And that's exactly what Jesus will do. He will defeat sin and death for God's people. It's not until we acknowledge that we're alone in some sense in the darkness that we realize that we need rescuing and that we need saving. This might have happened for you when you were five, when you're 25 or 55, or you're just an inquirer here tonight and you haven't really thought about what it might mean to put your trust in Jesus. But the reality is, even if you did that as a small child, was that you needed a personal encounter with God. We need to meet Jesus in the spirit by the word. We need to be confronted with our need of saving. God must break our self-reliance. He must humble us. He must change our identity. God must show us his grace. In a sense, God must show up. God must come near to us because that's the only way that we can come near to him. Those who trust Jesus don't receive blessing from God by grasping but entrusting themselves to Jesus, the one who has defeated sin and death. The greatest blessing Jesus gives his people is a new name, a new identity, to be called children of God. Who am I? Runner man 86? No. Adam? Yes and no. But more accurately, before God, I am his child. I am a child of God. That's an identity God gives me. Now, the writer J.I. Packer, uh, in his book, Knowing God, uh, he, he asks Christians every day to tell themselves things. It's a bit of like self-talk, reminding themselves of their identity, their reality, and their destiny. The first thing J.I. Packer tells us to say every day is, I am a child of God. Um, there's six things. I'll, I'll tell you the rest of them as well. Um, I'm a child of God. God is my father. Heaven is my home. Every day is one day nearer. My saviour is my brother. Every Christian is my brother too. I'll say those one more time. I'm a child of God. God is my father. Heaven is my home. Every day is one day nearer. My saviour is my brother. Every Christian is my brother too. These things shape our identity. As children of God, we're gifted the victory only Jesus could win. Our sure hope is one day we too will defeat death not in our own strength, but because it's a gift from God in his son. We still battle this world, we still struggle with sin, 
But we don't fight against God. We fight with God in our side and his spirit in our hearts. We don't fight against the world, the flesh and the devil to join God's family, to earn his favour, but because we're already his, his dearly loved children. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. By grace we begin and by grace we continue until God calls us home. How about I pray? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that because he lived a perfect life and died a criminal's death, uh, we can come near to you. Father, thank you for the new identity that you give us in your son, the new name you, dis- you, uh, you give us. We don't deserve to be called your children, but that is what you tell us we are. Uh, Father, at times in life when we find it so hard to know who we are, may that be an anchor for our souls to know that we are your dearly loved children. In Jesus' name, amen.